When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. Today, I am in the Austin Public Library, Central Library, downtown. If you are ever in Austin, I really recommend coming and checking out this library. It's a six-story building. There's this giant atrium. There's all these walkways and staircases sort of heading off in jagged, weird directions, kind of like an M.C. Escher drawing. Next to the children's section, there's a giant bronze statue of the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland. Like, the whole place is just super cool. Now, I don't have my kids with me today, but I do love bringing them here. Because, among other things, a library is a monument to knowledge. It's a place where we collect everything that humans have learned from the beginning of time. And that's something that we need to think about when we're having conversations around the Anthropocene. That, all right, so if you get into a conversation about when did this new geologic age begin, some people will point to the post-war period where our technological advances really skyrocket and global population goes way up. Other people will point to the Industrial Revolution, where we begin, you know, really ramping up our carbon output. Some people will go back to the Agricultural Revolution, where we really begin a fundamentally new relationship with nature. All of those are, of course, valid. But, you know, what underlies each and every one of those things is our knowledge and how we pass all that information along generation to generation. I mean, more than anything, that is what distinguishes us from every other organism that has ever lived. I've been very interested in trying to put some boundaries on when our collective knowledge reached a kind of tipping point, when we began to accumulate so much information and so much capability generation to generation that we began to look like something very different from any animal that had ever existed before. And that brings me to today's guest. I'm April Knoll. I'm a Paleolithic archaeologist and a professor of anthropology at the University of Victoria. I study the lifeways of our ancestors, starting officially, I guess, from the first stone tools about three million years or so ago, up to about 10,000 years ago. And my real interests are on the origins of modern cognition, origins of language, of symbol use, and cave art. And in particular, these days, I've been studying the lives of Ice Age kids. A few years ago, April wrote a book called Growing Up in the Ice Age, where she explores the fossil and archaeological evidence of children. 
the lives of children throughout the Plio and Pleistocene, so going back millions of years. Now, just to clarify that for a second, she's looking at humans, but in this case, it's humans in the broadest sense. That includes our closest living relatives that are no longer around, Neanderthals and Denisovans and so forth. April also describes herself as a cognitive archaeologist, which to me just sounds really cool. So I decided to begin the conversation by asking her, what exactly is cognitive archaeology? Cognitive archaeology really is where people are really interested in the mind and what we can know from the archaeological record about the mind. We're really looking at the origins of the kinds of things that we think make us human in terms of the way we think, in terms of our ability to use symbols, to use language, and so on, because I'm not always dealing with Homo sapiens. I'm actually looking at Neanderthals and Homo erectus and so on. And so looking for those beginnings of humanness, in, and I'm going to put that in quotes. Yeah, great. So, I mean, I, I hear sort of two distinctions in there, you know, kind of with a, a rough division around 10, 20,000 years ago, you know, into the last Ice Age-ish. Um, and one distinction is, you know, what we are calling human. And, and in your case, it is in, it involves all our close relatives that are no longer uh, extant. They're no longer on the planet, Neanderthals, right. Denisovans, and so forth. And then there's also a just sort of... Um, well, what you have to work with uh, and what gets preserved in the archaeological record, if you're interested in the mind, the mind doesn't necessarily leave an obvious physical record. So a lot of this is sort of you take little bits and fragments and close your eyes and try and imagine the past. And you really have to do a lot of imaginative work to uh, reconstruct the past from the scant archaeological record. Well, I think yes and no. As Paleolithic archaeologists, I don't know if I would use the word imagine, but maybe. Like, I think you have to be creative, I guess, with what you have. So you can take the bread and butter of my time period, which are stone tools, and you can look at them in terms of, you know, typology or technology or whatever. But then if you're interested in cognitive archaeology, then you can ask a whole bunch of interesting questions about what does it take to make a symmetrical artifact? What does it take to make standardized artifacts? And what does it mean? How did people learn to make stone tools? And then we have all kinds of evidence about novices learning stone tool making. And so you can then start to look at things like working memory, for instance, and how do you sequence the different tasks that you need in order to go from this hunk of rock to a nice hand axe, for instance. A good friend of mine, Miriam Heidel, who's a German archaeologist, does this incredible work on something that she calls cognigrams. And basically, it's looking at what she would call the problem-solution distance and how that distance gets greater and greater throughout time. So for instance, if I take, I don't know, an otter that needs to crack open a, a shell on its stomach and mm -hmm. eat the insides of that shell. That's its problem is how do I crack open the shell? Yeah, yeah its problem is I'm hungry. And right. so how do I deal with that? What do I do? And so in her cognogram, she has a few steps. You know, you have, you have to find the, the shell, you have to find the rock, and you have to bring them together. And, and then she has another one with chimpanzees, termiting. So using a stick to get termites out of a termite mound. And so the problem, again, is I'm hungry. <laughs> but the distance to, to that solution is a little bit longer. You have to find the right stick. You have to modify that stick. You have to do a variety of other things. And then she moves into the old one or pre-old one with early humans and starts to look at all the different things you need there. In order, Again, the problem is probably the same. I'm hungry. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. How, do you, how do you get to that? And then it becomes increasingly more complicated. And when I show slides to my students of this, I actually have to put the the old one and the Acheulean, which is the is the um, stone tools that, that come after that. Um, I have to put them on several slides, whereas I have one slide of a cute otter. You know? yeah. And yeah. so because this becomes more and more complicated and a variety of different materials are being brought together. And we bring in this idea of working memory. You know, we used to think about working memory back in the day of the kind of memory you'd use if you had to remember a phone number right away, mm -hmm. you know, or for a little bit of time before you could write it down or get to the payphone or whatever. Yeah. We don't so do that anymore. Like a sort of expiration date on it for how long can you hold it in your head? 
Exactly. But if we think about that small example, then we think about people's working memory becoming enhanced over time. The problem is more than just I'm hungry. It's, you know, I'm hungry now, but I'm also going to be hungry in a few days. And so how do I make this spear or how do I make this what we call composite tool where there is a a projectile point or, you know, arrowhead that's been put into a spear? Like, how do I do that? And it's not something where you see a deer or, you know, whatever, and then you all of a sudden start working on it. So there's all these steps and you have to remember to come back to it after you've been distracted. You have to come back to on task. And that's the difference, I think, for the working memory. Let me tell you what I hear in all that. And part of, and I think it circles back to, you know, why I really wanted to talk to you in the first place. To do those kinds of complex problem-solving tasks, at some point, you're telling a story. There's going to be a deer somewhere in the future. There's not now, but I'm going to make this pointed thing that I can kill the deer with later. And for there to be story, there's like a certain amount you you need to be able to do in your mind ahead of time to be able to create a story in the first place. The reason this is interesting to me is that this is a little artificial, but I think there is this question, which is, when did we become exceptional? as a species. Because, you know, today we are debatably a geologic force. We are as gods. When did that process begin? And and I think a lot of it is in our communicative capacity and our ability to create and tell stories. And I feel like, you know, your work begins to narrow the time period in which that happened. It's hard to obviously put a kind of golden spike in the geologic or archaeological record of when a certain threshold was crossed, but you're, that's mm-hmm. the sweet spot I think you're working in. I mean, my my reading of things, and I'm getting up to speed on a lot of this, so please feel free to correct me, but is, you know, if we are looking for some sort of invisible line that gets crossed in terms of humans, you know, really modern humans beginning to develop this exceptional capacity for storytelling and for language, I mean, Upper Paleolithic is kind of like the time period to start looking in. I think and and so. when is that? When is that, too? Oh, I want to make sure we're oriented the listener in time. For sure. So traditionally, it starts around forty or 45,000 years ago. Um, it'll vary from place to place, but that's a good general start date. In my own work, I've really focused on the Upper Paleolithic because I think if I'm starting to look for archaeological evidence of storytelling, of narrative, then that's the easiest or most obvious place for me to find it. I tend to do that by looking at cave art. And there is a number of different, we used to always think of Age art as just being sort of random animals. <laughs> and I think if you think of Lascaux or any sort of sites that your listeners might be familiar with, all you can think of are these uh, cavalcades of animals across the cave walls and ceilings and so on. And when I was taking art history as a student, it was always sort of talked about as being these random placements of images. But if you look at it, you actually see what I would call different examples of possible narrative. And I'm happy to to go into those for you if you want. But it's possible that storytelling does precede this, that if storytelling has always been part of the human story, if I can use that term, as long as we've had language, then I think language is actually significantly older than 40, 45,000 years ago. But the archaeological evidence for it is less compelling for stories, specifically for language, maybe less. Like a a colleague of mine, Ian Davidson, who's an Australian archaeologist, would argue that you have language in place at least by 65,000 when -hmm. you have people starting to navigate the seas and and, um, colonized places like Australia and so on, that you needed language for that. And I would imagine you probably need stories for that as well. Can I take a little on the definitions here? Uh, you know, I think when people hear the word language, they're thinking speech. Is that what we're talking about? Because there's other forms of language, you know, body language, for example, like there's nonverbal uh, language available. How, how are we using that word here? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, so there's definitely, you know, gestural communication, and certainly that's a huge part of storytelling today. So that's a different way that we can communicate. When I'm using language, I'm meaning that sort of more colloquial, yeah, I guess spoken language is what I'm thinking about. So, but I might make a small distinction with speech or at least the ability to produce words because, you know, parrots can produce some 
human words, but we wouldn't think that they actually are using language <laughs> in the same way. Yeah. Um, chimpanzees may be able to do some sorts of sign language, for instance. You know, I mean, there's controversies around that. But so there is a difference between the production of speech and the actual use of language and comprehension of language and so on. Um, but I guess in the general sense, that's what I'm thinking of when I'm talking about language is the ability to produce it and comprehend it and, and all of that. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I mean, I do kind of have to ask because there's, there's a sort of like to hear you talk about it just now, I'm sort of thinking about the, you know, anatomical, physiological abilities to, right. you know, how well are vocal cords preserved in the archaeological record, but also, you know, to the point about cognition and how sophisticated early humans were and were able to, to produce sounds. I mean, I guess what do we... There's a couple of questions I want to ask. One question is, you know, so there's some debate. You mentioned this colleague in Australia who would argue that it has to be at least by 65,000 years ago that some level of language is possible. So I'm curious about, you know, what the consensus is around when humans could speak. And then secondarily, I'm also interested in, uh, I just want to remind us that I guess that we're talking about humans as defined in all homo species. So does that also include Neanderthals and Denisovans? I guess these are two disjointed questions, but I'm I'm trying to still narrow in the envelope of like when do we see language emerge in a way that we have some consensus around, and how shared were those capabilities across uh, our closest relatives? Yeah, so I guess there are some people who would say that language goes back far deeper in time. The kinds of evidence that we can use to address this question include things such as looking at endocasts, which are impressions of the inside of the brain case. Uh -huh. uh, sometimes we get those artificially preserved very rarely, and other times we can make a cast of, the, of that impression. And, and just to kind of explain it a bit, if you think about when you take in a breath and every time your heart beats and so on, your brain is kind of pulsating a little bit, it kind of presses against the bone of your brain, the inside of your brain case. You can and feel it's that happening right now, as it turns yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. I'm not sure mine is. No, no, no. In a good way. I in a healthy way. Coffee. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the problem. I've had too much. Anyway, so yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But it presses against it, and bone is a lot softer than we think of, so it actually takes that in uh, impression quite nicely. But we're also, of course, only getting a very gross understanding of the organization of the brain, so we're getting the outside sulci and gyri and so on. So we can look at the different lobes and how big they are in relation to each other and other things we look at, for instance, to try and reconstruct the sort of throat area is to look at the, the base of the skull and how flexed it is and how it would have communicated with the rest of the bones there, if I, if I can put it that way. We have something called a hyoid bone, which is the only free-floating bone in the um, human body. That's also involved in uh, as a muscle, an area of muscle attachment for production of speech Sweet. and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, it, the human version looks very different from, say, the chimpanzee version. So that's another clue. Some people have looked at our vertebrae to see how the muscles that for like the kinds of breaths that you can take in and so on. Uh, there's people have looked at the thoracic vertebrae and so on to look at how again muscles and how um, that might give you some ability for certain kinds of breathing. So for instance, when I'm talking, I take in a deep breath and I sustain it while I'm finishing my sentence. And so those are, are different things that we can look for anatomically. So there's all sorts of things like that, but then there's also the archaeological record. There's that, you know, as I said, the, the navigation, you know, to unknown lands. There's the art for some people that is the first true evidence that language has to be in place. And so some people might put language going back to two million years, for instance. But I but I think the the consensus or, you know, where I feel more comfortable is saying that modern humans by at least two to three hundred thousand years ago when we have the actual evidence for anatomically modern humans um, have language, I would be very comfortable saying Neanderthals have language. They're so similar to us in so many ways. And there's been great studies looking at the ears of Neanderthals and what they could hear in terms of range of sounds. And so we always think about 
language as being the production of it, but in order to comprehend it, you actually have to hear it. Yeah, as the reception well. of it matters too. Yeah. Absolutely. And <laughs> yeah. so, you know, there's scientists who've done really cool work looking at what did Neanderthals hear. And so we know less about the Denisovans, but again, given what we do know, I would be very surprised if they didn't have language as well. That's interesting though. I didn't I mean I, I guess I knew this a little bit that not only were anatomically modern humans capable of speech hundreds of thousands of years ago, but perhaps our, our closest relatives were as well. I think it does speak to this, you know, like just to just to kind of return to the central question that I'm really interested in, you know, at what point did we sort of cross some line into being able to do something exceptional as a species. I, I think it's very hard in modern life to sort of remind ourselves that we, like every other organism, are a product of evolutionary history. And I think that part of the reason early human development is so fascinating is that there's a kind of curiosity of pinpointing a moment in time when certain things became possible and that where there are a certain kind of, I don't want to say exceptionalism, but a certain you know unique set of behaviors maybe begins to emerge. We spoke a second ago about uh, anatomically modern humans, which I think the rough consensus is 300,000 years ago, roughly. Is that about right? A term I had never seen before was behaviorally modern humans. Is that a term you've ever come across in your work? And what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, I've used it for sure. And people are starting to get away from using the term behaviorally modern because it, it brings with it a certain ambiguity. What does modern mean? But we often make that distinction between anatomically modern, where we have people who look like us, essentially, in terms of the size of our brains, in terms of being upright walkers, you know, all of those sorts of things. But does that mean that they were really us with a capital U or yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then for that, people are looking at their behaviors. So do we see them making art, making complex tools? Is there evidence for language? Do we have burials, for instance? And do those burials have grave goods in them that might suggest a, a notion of the afterworld? You know, all these sorts of things. You mm. can have a whole trait list. And in fact, people have published multiple different kinds of trait lists or checklists, you know, for whether this group or that group is behaviorally modern. And I think that's where we get into the problem is these sorts of checklists. What do they really mean? You know, from the outside looking in, I think what the way I would put it is to go back to what we were talking about a minute ago, which is <laughs> when did we become storytellers? What, what I guess, and there's a, there's that, that raises a whole family of questions, obviously. What does it mean to tell stories? What is the different the difference between teaching a technique to gather food versus telling a story about how to do it. I mean, it's almost semantic in, in some ways, but I, I do feel like these are all variations on that theme of when do storytelling apes, the hominids, begin to reveal themselves? And I guess I, I feel like this steers us back to the upper paleolithic with confidence. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me answer a question that maybe you asked me before, and then I'll I'll come back to this one. So you were talking about, if not exceptionalism, that it, uh, at least, I forget the other word that you use, but, you know, unique or whatever. Yeah, you, you yeah, think. yeah. I mean, the reason I don't want to say exceptional is because it sounds like it's a celebration of everything we do. And a central question in the Anthropocene is, is this all so good after all, if we're really driving the sixth extinction? I'm not so sure. Yeah, exactly. Okay, when did we become us, I guess? Yeah, when did we become us? Totally. And so that's such a a great question. And it's actually the question I always ask my students at the end of an exam, you know, the final exam. Uh, So hopefully they're not listening. But, you know, when did we become human with a capital H? And the thoughtful student, the answer that I'm looking for, so now I really hope they're not listening, (laughs) is, is, you know, they're not going to say to me, oh, it was at you know, 40,000 or was that 2 million or it was whatever. Because what I try and show is that all the things that we hold dear are actually quite mosaic in appearance. So we have upright walking is one of the first things, you know, we have the, the ability to move out into other parts of the world and become what we would now call that cosmopolitan species, right, in terms of our distribution, our ability to use fire, to care for those who are injured, you know, like all these different things to to make our, you know, all of that comes in in bits and pieces. And and sometimes these 
things that we think are really important innovations disappear for a while and then re and then come back, you know? Mm. So it's, so there's, it's really hard to pinpoint a moment in time where this is the beginnings of everything. But I think, you know, they all start to coalesce. They all start to come together. The closer we get to around 40,000, but I would, I, but I don't want to say that those are the first modern humans because I don't think so. I mean, I think the people two to 300,000 years ago are also doing things that we would recognize as being, you know, modern in quotes. I think it's more of a mosaic. Uh, when we're talking about storytelling, so for me, uh, I do say it with confidence that it's in place by the Upper Paleolithic. I think it probably is in place earlier. I think really when we have humans and we have language, we'll have stories and there's really great evolutionary reasons for why storytelling might be really important or might have been selected for. But I think the the archaeological evidence is less compelling or at least it's less evident. Yeah, less definitive. Yeah. Yeah, less definitive. I, exactly. Well, and I mean, you know, look, I get it. Or all of what we're talking about exists along a spectrum. And I, you know, I, the impulse to want to draw some line in the sand of like this began in this moment is, you know, is arbitrary. I want to transition and talk a little bit about your interest in understanding childhood and understanding children in the Ice Age. I know that that historically, children in the Paleolithic have been understudied. I don't want to get too into the weeds as to the reasons why, but let me just ask, why is it important to study childhood in prehistory? Well, you know, there are a number of reasons. I think, first of all, if we're wanting to understand the lives of our ancestors and we think about the composition of those communities, anywhere from a half to two-thirds of those communities were made up by children in the broad sense, so so non-adults, put it that way. So if we're going to ignore what half to two-thirds of the community was doing, then we're not really doing our job as archaeologists to really understand what the lives of these people were like. And that would be sort of in and of itself and uh, enough of a reason to study them. But I'm also really interested in them in terms of what we can learn about these children as people who bring knowledge forward from one generation to the next. Uh, We talk in anthropology about cumulative culture. And that is something that makes humans unique uh, among other animals. So in other words, everything that you might need to survive in a particular environment is more knowledge than can be held in any one mind. Yeah. And so what you need is to have the ability for shared cognition, for shared knowledge, shared memories, shared stories. We often talk about cumulative culture. We, you, we talk about it as having a, a ratchet effect. And if you think about a, a ratchet tool, right, it's something that's set up so that it only moves in one direction. And so we're always building on what's come before us. But in actual fact, when you think about it, like we can't possibly take everything that this generation knows and bring it forward. There's always some things that drop out. And so We often think about children as being these empty vessels that we're just going to fill with knowledge. But in fact, children have a lot more agency. And as they they grow older, they start to choose who they're learning from. So at first, the parents are the most important, and then their friends become more important. So we go from what we call vertical to horizontal learning. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, though, teenagers start to go back to adults, but they look for adults who are innovators or who they perceive to be innovators. Mm -hmm. And they start learning from those people. And teenagers seem to be the ones who are the most responsible for sharing new innovations. So they may not be coming up with all these new ideas, but they're the early adopters and spreaders of these ideas. And And I think about uh, teaching my parents how to use the VCR, for instance, how to right. program it. Yeah, you yeah. know, <laughs> that's yeah. how old I am. But you know, me too. And, me like, too. I'm right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then, and then my kids, though, showing me new apps or whatever. And I, and I'm a person who's fairly tech savvy, but I feel like I still learn from them. And yeah. they're always telling me I'm using Instagram wrong, for instance. You know, and these are just silly examples, but. 
the role of children and adolescents in being able to select from among all this knowledge as to what gets brought forward as part yeah. of this, you know, relentless cumulative culture, I think has really been understudied. And so if we're looking at the evolution of human culture, we need to look at these kids who are real vehicles for this transmission. Totally. No, I mean, I, I, this is what has me most wanting to talk to you. Uh, this is what, for me, makes it an Anthropocene question, a little bit of an Anthropocene origin story. The intergenerational knowledge transfer that happens, that's not just from parent to child, but that's from culture to culture down through generations. And I, I think, you know, a, a minute ago we were talking about, can we pinpoint in time the emergence of storytelling with any kind of certainty. And we can't, but we can begin to bound it. I think that we're also sort of in parallel. I'm interested in sort of bounding the time period when intergenerational knowledge transfer is sort of happening at at a level that like far exceeds just the genetic information that gets passed down generation to generation, that cultural accumulation really begins to scale up because that is what the Anthropocene is all about. It's this exceptional growth of right. information through generations. So it makes sense to study non-adults. It makes sense to study Absolutely. kids. And yet somehow in archaeology, it, it's not been emphasized in the past. And this is you know, part of the reason you wrote your book is that there's a lot to learn and there's a lot to know about the role of children in these societies. And I guess I just want to say one other thing about this. The 40 to 60 or 65% of yeah. societies being kids, like that challenges the mind's eye picture of what prehistory looked like. We have these like images in our mind of like adults on the savannah, you know, hunting yeah, and gathering. Absolutely. We don't picture a bunch of kids, you know, and they're there and they're most of the population maybe, or at least half, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I, whenever I give a public talk on this, you know, I ask people to think about these ancestral landscapes and invariably they're thinking about adults. And I have to say, well, you know, let me remind you, these adults were also moms and dads and aunts and uncles, uh, grandparents, and maybe they wouldn't use those exact terms or whatever, but they did have these relationships with these children who were all around them. And we, we see that, you know, there's actually thousands of Paleolithic footprints out there. There's there's actually mm -hmm. quite a rich record going back to Homo erectus and maybe even a bit earlier, well, and definitely earlier, actually, of footprints. And a good number of these belong to kids. And we can see that they were right in there when, you know, adults were making stone tools or butchering or whatever. And often they were participating in those activities and other times they were watching and sometimes they were just playing. And we have great examples in France of kids making mud balls and throwing them at stalactites and playing sort of tag and having sometimes what looks like some kind of wolf puppy or some kind of canine anyways, following them into the cave. And so we have all these adventures <laughs> that they're going on. Like they're all, it's also fun to study them because they're kids and they're walking in unusual places. And so their footprints aren't obliterated in the same way to the same degree that adult ones are. And so I think just um, even setting aside all their evolutionary importance, it's just fun to study them because any of us who are parents or, or have been around little kids can can recognize there's so much familiar in that, even if we're not talking about modern humans, even if we're talking about Neanderthals or Homo erectus. You know? Yeah. Well, I, but also hard and confusing. Like I was thinking about, I want to talk a little bit about the importance of play and imaginative play. And I, I was thinking about my son this is a, a probably fairly common story, but so he's eight now, but a couple of years ago, or maybe it was a year ago, he got really into this TV show called uh, Total Drama, which was sort of like Survivor. It was a cartoon <laughs> version. And, um, and I remember giving him a box of pencils, colored pencils to draw with. And instead of drawing, what he did was he turned this into a little total drama game where he was voting pencils off the island. He'd call that his pencil <laughs> game, right? That's awesome. so, which is, I mean, this is like, this is such a common story with parents. It's like, they're not mm. as interested in the toy you bought as the box that it came in. And yeah, that's, absolutely. So, so how do we recognize toys and play in, you know, the archaeological record if, you know, who, who knows what might have been a toy? Well, so so it's a good question. So some things 
obviously we're not going to recognize. There, there's a museum of play uh, in the U.S. that says that the stick is the first toy, you know, the oldest toy. And I'm sure they're right, you know, but that would not preserve, or if it did, I wouldn't recognize it as a toy, unfortunately. But then there are other objects. There's some animal figures made out of clay that people think might have been done either by kids or for kids. So, for example, we have these things, these little discs. They're made out of bone or ivory, sometimes of stone. They're really thin um, discs, and they often have a hole in the center. And sometimes they will have a picture on either side, and or other times just geometric shapes. And if any of your listeners had flip books when you were kids, when they would have a picture drawn on each page and you would flip it and then it would look like a little film, like a little movie that you're watching. And so we may have some early examples of this in the Upper Paleolithic. So one example that I, I love the most has a deer on both sides. And there's a hole in the center. And if you put a string through it and you tug the string back and forth, it, the, the disc would, would flip back and forth. And because of retinal persistence, you would have a blending of the images. And so it looks like the, the dough is moving. Mm. Actually, what you can see is the doe's body like stays in this in the middle but her legs are going up and down or its legs are going up and down and we have other examples of these artifacts that we call uh, in French rondelles that have um one side has i think it's a, a human it looks like getting into a fight trying to kill a bear for instance the other side the humans on the ground <laughs> So it didn't go that well for them. Um, It's broken, so we don't get the whole story. (laughs) Some of the chapters have been torn out, but you can kind of infer the the narrative there. So we have those kinds of things. And then the other thing I would say is that the, the line between work and play is really blurred, particularly for kids. They often learn through play. So if they're going to learn how to hunt, they might start by play hunting, for instance. You know, and as they grow, they get given bigger and bigger tools. We know this ethnographically. If they're making ceramics, kids will just learn about the properties of clay by playing with it first. Mm. And then, of course, then we have in the art, we have examples of where we have all kinds of tiny handprints and we have we have examples of what's called finger fluting. Uh, finger fluting is basically when you draw with your fingers and soft sediment on cave walls and ceilings. Like if you think about coming out of your shower, for instance, and your mirror is all steamed up and you just ran your fingers down it, that's exactly what it looks like, but in, a, yeah. but in cave walls. And so we have these tiny hands making all these designs. And so there's all kinds of examples of what I think are play and learning through play in the Paleolithic record. We just have to kind of come to the record with different eyes and and different questions. Well, I think that's what I meant at the start of the conversation when I said, you know, invoke a certain kind of evidence-based imagination. I mean, you know, even with children today, it's sometimes I, it's hard for me to get back into that childlike mindset. I think we're all trying to get in touch with our inner child sometimes, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And so to to do that with the amount of time distance that we're talking about here really does require a sort of like, what must have been going on for this to have made sense, for this child to be putting their hands on the cave wall or creating mud balls or flipping you know, a, a disc with a with way to simulate motion of something. Like what mm-hmm. had to be true for these artifacts to be there? What had to be true in terms of their cognitive capabilities, in terms of language, speech, and storytelling abilities? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, am I describing your work with any kind of way that makes sense? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, actually, yeah. I was thinking that's a really, like a really lovely way of putting it. Yeah, and I think, you know, I really started off by wanting to know what kids were doing so I could understand the adults they became, like what makes the difference between one species versus another hominine species, you know? How long was their childhood? What were they doing during that time? Uh, Why does the archaeological record of one group look different from another? Could it have anything to do with the kinds of experiences they were exposed to as children, like who they're learning from. And and I think a lot of that comes from being a parent. Uh, You know, I was doing another 
interview at one point, and I was talking about sitting on a beach watching my son, who was maybe six or seven at the time, and his his best friend. But I brought my laptop, and I was sitting on my. <laughs> I was, you know, happy they were making sandcastles because I and there I was writing about the evolution of play behavior yeah. and thinking, oh, the irony. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I can't put the laptop away. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, you know, boy. they they, they brought a lot all going these... on in that moment. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know I need therapy, maybe. But <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And, and so they brought questions to me that I might not have had otherwise. So. So there is sort of that that imagination or creativity that has you have to bring to this. Well, and it, I mean, it also just raises all these other questions of like universal human experience, right? Even though our mm-hmm. world is so radically different and technologically advanced and so on and so forth. I mean, part of what you have to do is say what has always been true, quote unquote, mm-hmm. always been true about mm-hmm. the childhood experience and the, the non-adult experience that that we can say with some level of certainty that extends into the deep past. And that's it's not an easy set of questions to get at. No. And and that's the thing is that so we talk about uniformitarianism when it comes to the biology. We know that growth and development proceeds in a certain way. I mean, it may be a little bit delayed. It may be a little bit sped up for a variety of reasons. But we know that certain things happen in the brain. You know, there's that great National Geographic a few years ago. Uh, I think it was called the teenage mind, you know, and there's there's all kinds of interesting <laughs> things going on there, uh, you know, uh, in terms of of development of empathy and that eventually kick in, you hope. And so... (laughs) Fingers crossed (laughs) the kick in, what what helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So we can make those kinds of assumptions and those have really important real world implications for how these individuals are making their way in the world. But then, of course, then we don't have that necessarily for other aspects of behavior. And so it really is a balancing act between being able to draw on things that we feel fairly certain, as you say, you know, have always been true, but not to go so far that we're just replicating the present in the past. Yeah, yeah, or spilling over into projection for that matter. I mean, it all still has to be based on 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 evidence. So I don't think I've led us to the question I want to ask, but I'm going to just force okay. an awkward segue here anyway. <laughs> so um, in Chapter 7 of your book, Growing Up in the Ice Age, you introduced this idea of niche construction theory. Uh, in that same chapter, you also referenced the Anthropocene, which is what made me perk up. We've kind of been talking about some of the ideas, but I can you help the audience understand what niche construction theory is and what it may stand in contrast to and why it's important for understanding the experience of non-adults in the in the Stone Age? Yeah. Um, so when we think about evolution, we think about the Darwinian model where you have a community of individuals, everyone is a little bit different, and some of these differences make them better adapted or less well adapted to a particular environment. And then when that environment changes, some people will survive and others don't. And when we talk about survival of the fittest, we act, we should actually be thinking about it as differential reproduction. So some mm-hmm. people will live longer, have more kids, and those traits get passed on over time. Well, and, like, this isn't just people we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about a framing of evolution that applies to all organisms, it sounds. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, Sorry. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's, that. you know, whether we're, I think, you know, talking about Darwin's finches or, or the cows on his family farm or whatever, like in this framework or paradigm for evolution, some people have critiqued it because they feel that in, in some ways it, it makes species seem like evolution is something that just kind of happens to you, you know, and you have no agency in this at all. And so other people have developed a a complementary idea called the extended evolutionary synthesis. And so it's this idea that, in fact, species are not um, helpless, that they actually have a, a hand in their own evolution. And for example, the, as a tree grows taller, it casts 
more and more shade. The area around it becomes larger and larger. Mm -hmm. And by casting shade and perhaps changing the soil chemistry with its leaves dropping or its roots moving out or whatever, it changes the, the local ecosystem around it, if I can put it that way. So it's actually changing the niche that it is adapted to. And it's, and it's also impacting other species that share that niche or around that niche. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I'm following it. So, I mean, there is this one sort of flavor of evolutionary theory where organisms are responding to evolutionary and environmental and ecological pressures, but that they mm-hmm. don't have any agency in terms of shaping their own evolutionary history. But that's not true. We know organisms are shaping and reshaping their environment. And maybe in a way that's not, if it's not necessarily intentional, it, it sets the course of their evolutionary trajectory into a new direction that is a little bit more, I don't know if right, what the right word is, interactive maybe? or um, Yeah, absolutely. It, is this, it a, changes a, the selection pressures that are on them, you know? Yeah. Okay. And, so let's, yeah. So help me understand how this applies to humans. I mean, like we have mm-hmm. an unbelievable ability to create our own environments. This is part of what separates us as a species. Yeah, absolutely. So you could think of us as being the ultimate niche constructors. Mm. And I think that that really does, you know, to answer a question that you sort of posed at the very beginning of, of our conversation, this actually starts really early on. And that's some of the work I'm, I'm doing with colleagues in Jordan right now. A colleague of mine, uh, Lisa Mahar from Berkeley, has found in the Epipaleolithic, so around 12,000-ish, there's evidence that people were burning the environment and experimenting with plants and all of these things. And we actually may have evidence for the modification of landscapes going back even further in time there. And so... I think this process that we think about is the Anthropocene now where humans have had such a great impact, as you say, we may be leading to this sixth extinction, really does start so much earlier. And I I think there's such a wealth of archaeological evidence to show that this process doesn't start, you know, with the Industrial Revolution or in 1960 or whatever, but in fact, it's a much longer process. And we can talk about the the pace of it and the invasiveness of it or whatever. That's probably obvious, but it does start really early on. And so for me, so I, I think about that in terms of this idea of cumulative culture when we're talking about experimenting with plants and in the beginnings of agriculture and all of those sorts of things. This is knowledge that we're transmitting from one generation to another and we're innovating upon and so on. And I think that that kids are so key to that in terms of, you know, being these not empty vessels, but rather these vehicles with agency to pick and choose among this knowledge and to bring it forward to the next generation. And again, but like sharing this knowledge. And so it's that our ability to have this shared memory, shared stories, shared cognition when it comes to technologies and all of those sorts of things that have really allowed us to become this cosmopolitan species that have allowed us to to move into virtually every corner of the globe. Well, and to me, like this has a real interesting relationship with story and storytelling ability that what mm-hmm. a, another way of putting it perhaps is that with each niche that humans modify, create, and expand into, they're telling a story about their environment. And that story is transmitted through generations. And as humans have spread to more and more environments. And as we radiated Mm -hmm. around the globe, the stories took on new shape and form. And then we get to the modern age where we're telling global stories about the global environment. And that is kind of new and incredible. In your work, I do see this, this kind of give and play between our storytelling cognitive capabilities Mm -hmm. and increasing power to shape and modify environments and 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 how we exploit resources in those environments that leave a physical evidence trace. So it's I feel mm-hmm. like you're what part of what you're doing is looking at what that physical evidence is, but also with the sort of thrust of a, of a child's ability to imagine 
you know, how to build on what they learned from the previous generation. Mm-hmm. Because that that imaginative play that happens in childhood is what creates a sort of bigger and different and newer story. Is mm-hmm. anything that's making sense? Maybe not. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think that we talked about working memory before and the yeah. ability to kind of sequence things. And so it's not only sequencing the steps you need to make a stone tool, but it's also the same ability to be able to sequence aspects of a story, to be able to create and follow a story arc. And along with that comes this imaginative play or what we sometimes refer to as fantasy play, mm-hmm. where kids and adults as well can sort of think through the consequences of a decision before you follow through on it or or decide to the better of it and not follow through on it, right? You have an argument with someone in your mind or whatever. And these things seem to come together, object play, language language, fantasy play, the beginnings of storytelling, and all of this come together, start to come together around age two in in modern human kids. And so it just shows me that these are very strongly linked abilities. When you start talking about this idea about being able to imagine a different story or imagine a different future, perhaps, I think that's really key here. I think that's the crux of all of this. You know, these, these stories. I always talk about children learning from stories, but I think they also learn through stories about how to think. And, you know, people have done really great work looking at the content of stories cross-culturally. They often seem to be most important in cases where you're trying to learn about things that might be dangerous to learn firsthand, you know, so you don't necessarily want to experiment with what plants are poisonous. You can have a, a great story that's about something totally different, but includes a lot of detail about what plants this character ate or, or avoided or whatever. And you can, they take that kind of knowledge forward. I was reading this really great interview with someone who had experienced the Indonesian tsunami from a few years ago. And he was talking about how he survived that and was able to help others and so on, not because he'd ever experienced a tsunami, but because he had heard all of these stories about what do you do in this rare event, because, you know, they they happen maybe not even once in a generation, you know, so you're carrying that forward. And so the kinds of knowledge that you need for exceptional circumstances or to be able to make sense of your world. That's another big thing people talk about with stories that they help with with sense making is so powerful in allowing you to move forward and and act in the world. And so yeah, I think absolutely what you I agree with with what you're saying. Um, you know, throughout the conversation, I mean one of the things I've really been interested in talking with you about is this sort of in my mind, break from the natural world, that at some point in human history, the question of what makes us us with human, with a capital H, I, I do feel like intuitively we all kind of feel like at some point we did leave the animal kingdom and we did strike out on our own and become a, a unique and exceptional species for better or worse. That's a little bit of a, a an arbitrary story, but it's one that has a lot of resonance. A lot of people do not feel connected to nature and do not feel connected to our evolutionary history. I wonder if you, as somebody who studies this really critical time period when some of those processes were set in motion, it, 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 like have you felt a change in your career in terms of like some days I do feel more like a product of evolution and an animal from the kingdom or or do you, you know, sort of deal with the same sort of, I don't know, modern sets of issues that we all do? I mean, obviously, we all have mortgages to pay and careers to build and and so on and so forth. But I just I wonder if if some of your work has allowed you to feel more of a connection with evolution overall in a way that I think a lot of people yearn for, especially who listen to this show. I, I think so. I mean, because I, I eat, sleep, breathe the the Paleolithic. And I, I once did a, an interview with the uh, CBC here in Canada about some blood residue studies I was doing with colleagues. And the interviewer stopped and she said, because I was talking about um, early modern humans and Neanderthals and so on. And she said, you know, you talk about them in the present tense. 
like they're alive. And I just started to laugh. And I said, oh my gosh, I think you're right. <laughs> like it doesn't occur to me because like so much of my my head is is in there, you know. So I yeah. maybe I think it does allow me to have this kind of connection. I mean, when I talk to my students or I talk to the public, I, I sometimes refer to what we call uh, scars of evolution. So, you know, the reasons why a lot of us in our 40s and 50s have lower back pain, for instance, is still getting over becoming a biped, you know, up on two legs from our quadruped ancestors. And those of us who have had to have our third molar removed, for instance, because of the changing jaw size and skull size and our dentition and all of these things. So that's like some, you know, in 2022, that's real world impact. And there's kids who are being born now with agenesis of the third molar. So they don't even have a third molar, Mm. you know. So I talk about that as these scars of evolution or, or evolution in action that we can kind of feel. So there are definitely those kinds of things. Uh, But I don't know, I think through my work when I'm studying these tiny handprints or these tiny footprints or these miniature stone tools or whatever, I think it does help me connect in some way that maybe uh, the work that I started to do when I was first starting as a grad student on, you know, decision-making and stone tools. um, I mean, that is also helping me get to the individual, but not in the same way that the work that I'm doing now allows me to connect and to um, feel our past. Yeah. I mean, that's the question I'm asking in a way is, you know, does it feel different, you know? And I also feel like it's mm-hmm. further um, supercharged or enabled by the focus on non-adults, that yeah. that there is something about trying to get into the minds of Paleolithic children, you know, because, I don't know, childhood can have this sort of innocence maybe is one word, but I think open-mindedness that comes with it that's like so rejuvenating and refreshing and that you know when you're able to put yourself in in those scenes from the distant past and do so with sort of empathy and wonder it just feels like it would connect you you know across time in a way that that i think is unique and cool and maybe i'm projecting april maybe this doesn't actually happen for you but it's like what it's what i want to imagine your work is (laughs) on a day oh yeah yeah no that's that's exactly how I feel. I think it, it definitely brings me in in a way that, you know, I've had, there are other entry points into the archaeological record, but I think I've so enjoyed my work of the last 15 years on this topic because I think it does bring me in in a way that, you know, measuring platform angles <laughs> maybe <laughs> doesn't, even yeah. though that's super important. But now I look at these stone tools as the product of novices. If we think about how long it takes to learn to make a good stone tool and and how much crap you produce <laughs> as you're yeah. learning to make a stone tool. And so I start to look at the archaeological record and the flakes on my sites uh, in a whole different way, I guess. No, and I mean, this is my experience as a geologist, too. When I was interested in Earth history, I mean, like, really having a moment, I don't even know how to describe it. It's a little bit noetic, I guess, but um, mm-hmm. a deep time moment. I, I, they're so mm-hmm. ephemeral, right? It'll, it'll, it, for one minute, I feel like an aperture is opened and I'm able to glance into the distant past mm-hmm. and also feel the gulf between where yeah. I am today and the distant past. And then I'm like, Wait, what just and then it's gone, right? It just it comes yeah. in these fleeting moments. But that's that's what it means to hone in and study the hell out of a flake, you know, or a little varve in the geologic record or or whatever it may be. Is that is that it just happens in this did you do you know what I'm talking about? Have yeah. you had this experience with well, time? Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking as you were saying that, because I, you know, I was, my other sort of area is really focusing on on cave art. So what kind of st- struck me was reading some article somewhere where someone made the point that Chauvet Cave in France, which is somewhere around 35,000 years old, mm-hmm. is as distant from Lascaux Cave that maybe people are more familiar with, which is around 17,000-ish, as Lascaux is from us today. Oh, wow. You know? Yeah. And so that... Like, I just had to, and it's 
and I've looked at those dates a million times, but yeah, I hadn't really yeah. thought about that, that as many generations have passed between us and Lascaux as Lascaux and Chauvet, and yet we often collapse them together and talk about the rock art as if it's all one, you know. And yeah. uh, so This that, is the thing that gets lost with the numbers, right? This is yeah. what's so hard to communicate from a deep time perspective is that you look at the numbers, but if you can begin to to sit with them and just imagine mm-hmm. how many times the earth had to go around the sun um, to get from, from there to here. Um, you yeah. know, And just to kind of throw a, another sort of observation into that, like when I'm looking at, at cave art, one of the things that really struck me, I, I, I spent a summer visiting a ton of different caves and what I kept coming up against was the sense of humor in the art, which you would never think of, right? Because people always think of Ice Age peoples as being on the verge of starvation. And, yeah. you know, they're doing art. It's for a very specific function of controlling the animals, you know, spiritually or whatever, you know. And yet there's so much humor in this and there's so much visual play in this. There, there, There's a cave in, in Spain where you walk in and it looks like you've startled the deer. Like they're yeah. looking towards you and they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's like a far side cartoon or something, right? Yeah. Exactly. Like there's yeah. all kinds of things like that in smiling yeah. animals and so on. And I just think that's another sort of entry point for me into the deep past was to find much to my delight that that a lot of this art is funny, that there's yeah. a sense of humor yeah. in there, which I think if you don't really study it, you you know, it's certainly not what you're you might not get the joke, as it were. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. That I mean, and well, and you know, what what better uh, mechanism for intergenerational empathy is there than humor? So I really yeah. like that you brought that up. That's really cool. Well, April, I've taken up a lot of your time. This has been a really wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Thanks so much again to April Knoll for that conversation. Again, her book is called Growing Up in the Ice Age. Thanks to Brandon Burke for producing this episode. And thank you for listening. I'm Michael Osborne. See you next time.